This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, in light of what is happening, uh, the new measures taken by Victoria, we're going to talk about more, more about that in the next half hour. We thought we would make today's hot question of the day also COVID-19 related. We like to keep it a little bit lighter on the hot question. We still need a little bit of lightness and not everything can be super, super serious. So we decided today to ask you, what could you not live without if you had to quarantine for 14 days? And we've put some suggestions up there. Coffee? liquor, TV or internet, spouse. You can vote on Twitter at CKNW. You can also call the buzz line. CKNW's buzz line is 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. Leave your vote there and you can explain it a little bit too. I think a lot of people have been thinking about this. What could I live without? What could I not live without? And of course you could, but what would make it highly uncomfortable if you had to hunker down in your home or whatever space for 14 days? So check us out on Twitter at CKNW, at Jill Report. So we are asking you today, what could you not live without if you had to quarantine for 14 days? We'll take a break for the news headlines to the bottom of the hour. Thanks for being with us today. As you've been hearing on the news, Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General, is using some extraordinary powers under the state of provincial emergency to keep British Columbians safe, to maintain the essential movement of goods and services, and to support the ongoing response to COVID-19. Let's bring in Keith Baldry, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief, to talk a bit more about this. Keith, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, These are some pretty, I mean, we've had states of emergency before with the wildfires, so that's not uh, really something new, but these measures are pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I've never been seen before, never been enacted before. It basically gives uh, the government, the central government, the BC government, the power to do a number of things. Uh, much of the focus from today was about ensuring we have a strong, robust chain of supply of goods and provisions, and that's food, other provisions, and medical equipment, that there's a free flow of them, that the flow of goods uh, transcends and um, is basically exceeds any municipal power to thwart the flow of goods. Many municipalities, for example, have a, a bylaw in place that you can't deliver things after a certain uh, time of night, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Yeah, there can be no commercial deliveries. That's now stand down. Uh, there can be 24-7 delivery of things uh, to... to um, distribution centers. There's also uh, power to, just in case, to get ready, and this is, again, a lot of this stuff is just-in-case stuff, to designate community centers, convention centers, potentially schools to be used as for quarantine purposes, uh, as medical facilities. If we suddenly have too many people in hospital to, that exceeds the number of beds, that these other facilities can be used uh, for overflow. And again, this is worst-case scenario stuff. Also, uh, designating municipal bylaw officers are no longer worried about uh, your part 
parking or your your dog license it's now um they are now going to be in, uh, enforcing the public health orders from Dr. Bonnie Henry if you're caught congregating in too big a crowd you're going to get potentially fined uh and uh, and again the the enforcement's going to be stepped up considerably and there are penalties uh, for violations so it's a it's another stepping up of powers from government to stop the spread of the virus and it's basically stuff that's going to be in their back pocket really uh rather than something you're going to see uh, uh visible and interesting Mike Farmer today in his in his news release released 9 pages uh, detailing what is considered an essential service, and that's why you're not seeing any closures of things today. It's a, it's actually almost the reverse to say there are so many things that are essential in our society they must remain open, and that's primarily about um, the about food and and vital provisions. And that means so you, you look at how you get your food. It's everything from the farmer to the and, and the harvester to the truck driver who drives your goods to the people who pack things for for food to get it into the truck the truck that takes it to the grocery cent, uh, mall uh, grocery store and the people who work in the grocery store that whole chain there is deemed essential and you see that on a number of other fronts as well uh, does it actually give bylaw officers more power because one of the questions i've been getting from people is uh, you generally generally speaking bylaw officers aren't feared for lack of a better word as much as say police officers does it give you, you them haven't power? met you haven't met victoria parking uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> uh it does it gives them it just it redeploys their responsibilities so instead of issuing parking tickets i think they're going to be looking for violations of public orders and that means um, groups of people um, going places where they're not supposed to be going if they see the proverbial bonnie henry's referred to basketball games for example outdoors uh, bylaw officers will be told uh, i think um, try to enforce that by not having that. It doesn't mean that they're going to be able to lock people up or anything, but they'll be basically asked to sort of aid in the surveillance of improper activities that violate uh, primarily the physical distancing rule, uh, but also um, any other public order that uh, Dr. Barney Henry makes. Uh, there's a line in there on travel as well, because I was uh, somebody had asked me if there was any move or, or if there was going to be any move to restrict ferry traffic or to stop people uh, from even going between Vancouver Island and the mainland. Uh, that does say, though, uh, that it, they can direct passenger and car ferry operators uh, to mm-hmm. provide minimum services, a priority for residents and essential goods. Yes, and, and minimal service levels is the key there. But, you know, uh, ferries and C-SPAN in particular... Uh, C-SPAN, I live on Vancouver Island, it's an island, and our goods come by truck and containers, and that that flow of goods has to be maintained. So much of it comes over on the C-SPAN barges, and so that has to be maintained. But a bunch of it also comes on BC ferries, you know, the bottom car deck is filled with trucks. And so the trucking industry is vitally important right now. It's deemed uh, an essential service, and it must be able to continue to serve, and that means... um, uh, marine uh, byways that uh, they uh, they have to be able to uh, be able to access ferries and and barges and that's uh, that's designated at all. But again, the word is minimum, so I don't expect BC ferries. BC ferries, is, for example, has already reduced its its number of runs because it's it's just not getting as many people right now for obvious reasons. So that'll be reduced, but it has to, those, that link must be maintained. 
It also talks a bit, and you mentioned this, so the city of Vancouver is a little bit different because it has the Vancouver Charter, but it does say that going forward, the city will require permission to issue new orders under yes. its own state of emergency. It, it washes out or, or kind of nulls and voids the other states of emergency from other municipalities. Uh, so does it seem strange? Why did we go through uh, this patchwork of having the different municipalities announce these states of emergency if there was no reason to because now the province is doing it for them? Well, that's a very good, very good question. I can tell you, I picked up a, a, a noted, um, not anger, but disappointment in senior levels of the of the BC government in Vancouver invoking its own state of emergency and others doing it. It was not seen as helpful. You have to have a consistency around the province. You heard John Horgan refer to a patchwork of emergency declarations. Uh, sometimes they can be at odds with each other. So Vancouver is separate because it operates under what's called the Vancouver Charter, which is a unique uh, piece of legislation that governs Vancouver. Nobody else, no other municipality has that. So the province will uh, basically now take control of all states of emergency going forward. And that includes Vancouver. Vancouver's will remain in place, but as you mentioned, uh, it specifically uh, uh, mentions that going forward, the provincial uh, emergency designation will take uh, precedence over the Vancouver one. So it's really to get everybody on the same page uh, and have a central um, guiding hand here. And this is this new task force that Mike Farnworth has set up, particularly on the, on the supply chain. Uh, but it's also to his orders are also to assist Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Henry's um, uh, steps to take to protect public safety in stopping the spread of of, uh, of the virus. That to just basically give her orders a little more heft here to ensure that they're followed. You heard John Horgan and Mike Farmer say, you know, these are not recommendations; these are orders. And I think you're going to see a tougher a tougher hand played here in the days ahead because we're really, you know, talking to Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry consistently, we're bracing ourselves for what's about to come. We really haven't been into this thing yet. Uh, We've only got 600 and change cases, only 64 hospitalizations, but they are bracing themselves. Keep in mind, Adrian Dix has cleared out more than 3,800 hospital beds. That gives you an indication of what the scenario is of what could be coming here. And that's why these extraordinary steps are being taken now because we're not, these aren't taken because we have 600 cases. These are being taken because there's an anticipation we could have thousands of people in hospital. Absolutely. Uh, one other question, Keith, and that has to do, uh, like you mentioned, and the release is a lengthy one that goes into what is deemed essential. Uh, does this give you the impression then uh, that BC is not going to be going to the root, the root of some of the other provinces like Ontario that have shut down shuttered businesses except for those uh, deemed essential? Because it seems like even under this list, if that was to happen, most things would stay open. Yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with Mike Farnworth and Adrian Dix about this. Uh, the the feeling on from their point is we are moving step by step to a very. To, I think the word lockdown is the wrong word. We're moving uh, to a much more restricted society that prevents the flow of people uh, and congregating of people because that's the main way you stop the spread of the, of the virus. You get people apart from each other, and they're doing as much as they can to do that. And I'm not sure just shutting down random businesses who on their own are taking steps to ensure people. Or stay apart uh, is really going to be that much more effective. So they think that Bonnie Henry's approach, which is to sort of curtail the movement of people and the gathering of people on a strongly recommended basis, will get the point across to enough people who will voluntarily follow this to stop 
a further heavier hand of suddenly shutting down the entire economy. And if you look closer at some of the proverbial lockdowns that are occurring out there, you start looking at the fine print. They're not really lockdowns. California, people say it's under lockdown. Well, it's got 16 exemptions. 16 sectors are exempted. Ontario has exemptions as well. So it's a nice, tough-sounding word, but I'm not sure it's actually uh, that accurate a description of what's actually occurring. BC is taking enormously restrictive steps here, and uh, will take further steps, but it still allows people to circulate as long as they stay there two meters apart. If we, if Bonnie Henry gets evidence this isn't being followed, look for her to take tougher measures. Uh, as I say, we're not at the, even really at the beginning of this thing, uh, and the end is still a far, long ways away, so many more things could happen. All right, so we'll leave it there. Keith, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right. And we are talking about COVID-19. And one of the numbers that might be surprising is just how many tests are being done in in BC throughout the province. And it's been an impressive number since we first started dealing with this and finding out exactly uh, what the threat was, where COVID-19 was coming from. And then we started to see those community spreads as well. Uh, we've been looking around the world as well and some other countries that have impressive numbers, South Korea, uh, one of those, uh, what's happening in Taiwan to stop the spread of the virus as well. Uh, but where do we stand as far as testing? Well, let's bring in Ian Young. He is the Vancouver cor- correspondent with the South China Morning Post, and he joins us on the line now. Ian, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. How are you? Uh, very well. How about yourself? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, so you've written about this and taken a look at the testing because we've been hearing in those daily briefings from Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry, a lot of tests, more than 3,500 or about that number every day in BC. Yeah, that's right. And I think to put that in context, um, that is an awful lot for somewhere like BC um, because uh, on a per capita basis, that's actually testing at a faster rate uh, than South Korea ever did, even at the peak of their um, of their outbreak. You know, and South Korea is routinely held up as um, uh, the gold standard for, for testing rates because they were testing 20,000 people per day um, as they tried to, to, to run down their, their epidemic. Uh, and, and we're actually doing better than that on a per head basis. And even if we go back to when we first started having these briefings and when we were just learning about the outbreak in Washington State, I remember covering one of the Saturday briefings and Dr. Henry at that point and Adrian Dix had said uh, BC was testing more than the entire United States. So it seems like as far as the numbers of tests, the number, the testing itself, it seems like BC has been ahead of things. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that um, in the last couple of weeks alone, um, BC has really ramped up the testing from about, I think, about 800 800 per day was the capacity, and now it's at 3,500 per day. Uh, But there are a lot of valid concerns about the way that um, testing is directed. I think there, there are, you know, quite rightly, there are questions about how that is done. Now, I think that's a matter for experts about whether or not, um, you know, everyone should be tested or, you know, whether every suspected case needs to be tested and things like that. But in terms of the raw numbers, um, BC is certainly um, uh, doing a pretty world-class job. 
So some of the criticisms, you're right, have been about in the in the beginning when perhaps there wasn't as much scrutiny at airports or at border crossings with people coming into the country, and uh, and that and the fact that that likely or did lead to the community spread. Uh, Dr. Henry has has talked about that. Has said yes, uh, that was not an oversight. That was part of what the province had planned all along. Uh, but you've written about this as well that there has been some criticism over exactly who gets tested. Yeah, sure. I think that um, the, the rationale that Dr. Henry outlines is, is um, you know, it makes it makes strategic sense, I think, for a lot of people. But for a lot of people, it doesn't, because what it means is that even if someone is suspected of having COVID-19, if they're a traveller from overseas who's arrived here, then they aren't necessarily going to get tested because, um, using Dr. Henry's logic, um, it makes more sense for that person to simply self-isolate unless they need hospital um, treatment. It makes sense for them to stay at home rather than potentially going outside and spreading COVID-19 in their efforts to get tested and going to a clinic or having uh, interactions with medical workers. And I think that's, that's also something that needs to be considered. Uh, and and the fact that people aren't being tested, like you said, when, and we've had a few cases of that when there's been a positive test, people in that uh, isolating in the same house with the positive test have shown symptoms. They're not going to get tested. They're going to be. It's going to be an assumed case. So, so although it's not in the actual numbers, uh, a test isn't needed in that case to say yes, this person likely has it. Sure, I think that people need to probably focus a little bit less on the on on the daily numbers if they're thinking that that is an accurate depiction of the exact number of infections in British Columbia. And I mean, clearly it's not. I mean, you've got a lot of um, assumed infections that are happening. It might be much, much, much bigger. Uh, But I think that if uh, we accept that a certain proportion of of cases are being captured and a certain proportion of cases are not being captured, then we can see the general trends about whether or not infections are going up or down. So do you think it's, it's, that's what's being con- a, a bit confusing for people is that we get one message from the World Health Organization or we see different levels of testing in different countries and wonder if BC is doing enough? Yeah, I, I think that people haven't drilled down enough into the numbers. The numbers do sort of speak for themselves in terms of how much testing is being done. Um, and there is always going to be a debate about uh, how it's directed. Um, but, you know, the numbers do speak for themselves. BC on a per capita basis, you know, uh, you know, daily tests per million people. Uh, we're doing about 600 or about 700 uh, tests per day, per million. Uh, South Korea, even at its peak, was only doing about 390 um, uh, per, cap, per million uh, uh, tests daily per million people. Uh, and, and BC's rate is about 75% higher than that. And, and that alone is something that is laudable. Um, and there's always going to be room for discussion about how the testing is conducted and where and the rationale. But in terms of sheer numbers, I think that we're doing okay. All right. Well, Ian, we will leave it there. Uh, I'm sure we'll chat with you about this again. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about this day today. No, Appreciate it. No problem, Jill. Thank you. As you've been hearing on the news, American government officials inside the White House are discussing the idea of putting troops near the Canadian border. That's the border between Canada and the United States amid concerns about the spread of COVID-19. Uh, let's bring in Amanda Connolly, national online journalist in politics with the global And she joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Amanda, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I know this this uh, started. Uh, this report came from several sources. Uh, Mercedes Stevenson also uh, talking about this today. What do we know about these conversations and about this idea of putting troops at the border? 
Yeah, and so as you mentioned there, it was our bureau chief, Mercedes Stevenson, who broke this story earlier this morning. And what we're hearing so far is that there are discussions taking place inside the White House uh, right now that are looking at putting troops near the Canadian border. And that's specifically because of U.S. concerns about border security in light of the coronavirus pandemic. And so um, we're, again, there's not a lot of detail about this because it, it, it is certainly appearing that uh, no decision has been made at this particular moment. But what we're certainly hearing in terms of how this could work is that the idea here would be to have uh, troops stationed about 30 kilometers back from the border and that would be specifically between official points of entry. So um, looking really at, at targeting kind of the irregular border crossings that we've seen uh, over the past couple of years. And of course, the reason this is interesting here is because there aren't really a lot of uh, cases of irregular border crossings going from Canada into the U.S. As people are, will probably remember, this really tends to be a story that we hear a lot more about in the context of irregular border crossings from the U.S. coming into Canada. And so we've certainly been hearing um, a lot of reaction to this, a lot of um, questions about how it could work, why it could be coming up now, and what it would mean for Canadians, given all of the uncertainty happening right now. Exactly that. And I think that was the response from a lot of people when we first started hearing about this, was that of all the issues and all the, the problems right now, people going into the United States illegally across that border never really seems to be a huge issue. Yeah, and so, I mean, we've certainly seen, you know, kind of numbers looking to that effect. I mean, we, we know that the, um, I think it was 20,000 people in, in 2018 crossed into Canada from the U.S. And the same numbers going the other way from that period were around 4,300 people crossing from Canada to the U.S. So really, uh, I mean, in, in terms of recent data, that's about as close as we get. And it's, it's really not necessarily on the same scale. And so uh, there were certainly a lot of questions about that today, both to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and to Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, really focusing on um, what is the basis for this? How did this come about? And what are they hearing about what the... Um, the kind of rationale is behind these considerations. And we don't really have a lot of answers at this point. It was fairly unclear. We heard from Freeland that they only learned about this a couple of days ago or a few days ago, she was saying, uh, and that they've been expressing very strong opposal to the U.S. about this, making it clear that uh, this is something that, in, in, in her words, quote, we will view as damaging to our relationship, end quote. So certainly um, a, a lot of concerns being raised about this and, and, again, questions going forward about what it would mean. Absolutely. So, I mean, on the one hand, though, it was good to see that they did confirm that these conversations are taking place. They know about these uh, conversations, but not a lot of detail on even how uh, Canada stands. I mean, like you said, the Prime Minister uh, acknowledged this. He said that it's the longest unmilitarized border in the world and that it's in both of countries' interest for it to remain that way, but uh, didn't really give an idea uh, if Canada's even involved in these conversations or, or what might happen next. Yeah, and so we heard from him basically saying, as you noted there, that they have the Canadian officials have been in discussions with the U.S. on this. Uh, we heard a little bit more from from Freeland in, in her comments saying that a number of ministers have been involved in in talking with us. I believe she named uh, the defense minister and the public safety minister as uh, individuals who who have been kind of involved in these conversations on the Canadian side. And of course, um, Canadian officials, she's been saying, have been raising very strong concerns to their U.S. counterparts about this. And the, I think the part of the question here, too, is, again, um, what the impact would be on things like trade, on um, people, essential workers and things like that who have to go across the border. And again, because what we're hearing so far is that this plan would have 
these troops stationed on the, at the irregular border crossing points. It's not really clear how that would play out because a lot of those people who would be coming across the border in terms of essential workers would most likely, it seems, be coming through at the official points of entry because they're not being barred there, right? Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it's very, very unclear, very uncertain as to what the thinking is behind this right now. Um, and certainly that's that's kind of what we're we're hoping to get more clarity on and certainly what we're asking about right now. And it does seem odd as well, because the, the proposed scenario, as far as we understand at this point, it's not as though the troops would then be arresting people or detaining people. They would then have to call border agents. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's part of the, the kind of confusing element to all this is that because of the way that the U.S. Uh, rules around the military work domestically there, they really can't have... Uh, and the military members who, who it seems would be deployed actually acting in kind of an enforcement capacity. They would basically be, to the best of our knowledge right now, using things like sensor technology to detect these irregular crossers and effectively flagging that to Border Patrol agents who would then be the ones who have to actually go and intercept the irregular crossers. So again, there's there's a lot of uncertainty here, a lot of questions about you know what they're, what they would hope to concretely achieve in doing this and how um, how big or widespread of an impact it could actually have in terms of effectiveness. So, and again, that that really is the the, the big unknown right now. You know, we we know certain uh, certain things about this. There's a lot more though that we do we just simply do not know right now. And I know Global News has reached out to, for more clarification. Has there been any comment or any clarification from the administration in the U.S.? No. So we did reach out to the White House earlier this morning uh, before, of course, before we put the story out there, we did reach out for comment. Uh, we have not had any response back from them. And, and what we heard from uh, Freeland as well today, uh, who, of course, is probably who, who is one of the people most looped into these conversations in that right now by virtue of the role, uh, is really that, that, that we're not going to be getting any comment from the Canadian side on what they might be hearing or what they might uh, be thinking about as to the the rationale behind this. She was saying, she was asked repeatedly, you know, what what is your sense of what's happening here, why it's happening, what's going on, and effectively saying that um, the, these are discussions happening in another country, they are internal conversations, and because of that, it just would not be appropriate for um, a, a foreign government, the Canadian government, to be commenting on on what might be going on behind the scenes there. So um, certainly a story that, that they will continue to face questions on over the coming days, and one that there, there are a lot of um, moving parts and uncertainty around that we're going to have to I guess for now, wait and see what happens. All right. Uh, we will be watching and looking for updates on this. Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Well, flattening the curve has become a phrase that we use several times a day. We've gone from probably not using that phrase in many, many years, if ever, to having it part of our daily conversation. So are we doing enough to do that in stopping the spread of COVID-19, or is it too soon to even know? Jason Tetro joins us once again. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, great to have you back on the program. Great to be joining you. Where are you, do you think, as far as uh, we've been told that we have to take these measures, it then takes some time before we know if the measures are working. Mm -hmm. Given the numbers we're seeing now, where do you think we are? Well, I, I think right now what's happening is that um, we, uh, we appreciate that there is community spread. 
Okay, and so there are definitely people who are going to become infected, but they're either going to be asymptomatic or they're not going to have uh, very significant symptoms. Um, If you can only do 3,500 tests in a day, what you need to do is you need to start focusing on um, the most likely cases and the ones where you can um, essentially do contact tracing to try and figure out where the virus came from. And this is really where we are right now in British Columbia. Um, In terms of flattening the curve, Well, when you look at how many people are coming up infected as a result, okay, it's coming at around 2%. It's very similar to South Korea, which means that it does sound like all the measures are working. The problem is, is that this past weekend, as you've probably heard numerous times, there were a lot of people who were gathering on beaches and along the seawall, and that could have potentiated a uh, sort of a cluster of spread, but that may not be able to be seen for at least another week after today. So while we look like we're promising at the moment, it's still too early to tell whether or not it's going to continue to last. Uh, with the announcement yesterday, and we are getting the daily announcements uh, from the province, uh, from our provincial health officer, uh, 42 new cases yesterday, one new death uh, that was reported. Do those mm-hmm. numbers then, do you think, give people that false sense uh, that we're seeing a decline and that we are, so in fact the measures are working? Well, it means that the measures were working uh, 10 days ago. Um, (laughs) And I think that's the problem is that, uh, and and Dr. Henry has stated this numerous times, um, you have to understand that the numbers that we're seeing today are reflective of what happened, you know, a week and a half ago. And so what we have to do is sort of keep our trust, keep our, 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 you know, keep the process going, if you will, so that we can continue to maintain those numbers. Because as I said, I would expect next week that uh, we're going to start seeing another big spike. And of course, people are going to get very scared about this. But remember that it would have because of something that would have happened, you know, several days ago. And we saw new measures announced today or potential measures from the province to stop that exact thing, to have the behavior that you're right, that we'll then see uh, several days down the line. Um, We talk a lot about the number of cases, uh, the total 659 cases in B.C. There have been 14 deaths. Um, The deaths are are very sad. They're tragic. But what about the fact that the deaths all except for, I believe, three were in one care home facility? Well, what this is saying is that um, as this virus is spreading, um, it doesn't seem to be affecting, um, you know, the most uh, at risk. Uh, and, if, and again, you know, it's the elderly, uh, people who are definitely over 80. Um, it's also people who have uh, pre-existing conditions, hypertension, diabetes, uh, kidney problems, lung problems, that type of thing. So it looks like, um, you know, in as much as we're, the social distancing is working, we're also protecting uh, the most at risk. You see, there, there are a couple ways of being able to deal with an outbreak, and you know, protecting those who are most at risk is sort of the secondary to the social distancing in terms of what we need to do. It seems that both is happening right now in uh, British Columbia, and I think that's a very good sign. But again, remember, everything that you're seeing today is based on something that happened a week to 10 days ago, so you can't necessarily say that what we're doing today is just as good as what happened then. We just have to try and do our best to keep it up. Right. And, and is it safe to say or does it make sense that we we're looking at those numbers if we were to still if we were to see the numbers of people in hospital doubling? That's mm-hmm. when things when we realize that things really aren't working. Well, this is a, com- a compounding factor. And of course, this is the reason why we talk about social distancing is so we don't overwhelm our healthcare facilities like we've seen in uh, Italy, Iran, and, and some other places. I think right now what's happening is 
Um, the government is doing the best that it can to be prepared just in case. Okay. Now, how long will that just in case, you know, abundance of caution, I think is the, is the word for 2020. Um, how long will that last? Well, it's hard to tell. But if we do happen to see this happening, uh, where we're not having very many um, rise, not a huge rise in cases, and it seems to be continuing on for a long period of time where we're not seeing any spikes, then maybe it might be time to sort of let off the gas. But that's probably not going to be at least until Easter, if not maybe beyond that. Uh, Can you talk a bit as well about masks? Because there seems to be, there has been a bit of a shift in that right out of the gate, we were told the masks are needed by healthcare workers. If you are somebody in the public, if you are just walking around, that mask isn't going to keep you protected. But now we've seen some other countries where it's mandatory to wear a mask in public. Uh, There are graphs being shared on social media showing that, yes, in fact, it does give you a level of protection. There seems to be a lot of confusion. Yeah. The thing is, is, if you're used to wearing a mask, like they are, say, in Japan, um, then it's okay, and, and that's probably a good thing. The issue that we've seen, and this isn't actually due to the public. This is because of what we've seen in healthcare workers, and I was in Saudi Arabia where I saw this with MERS, is that people don't know how to use masks. And so you have to understand, not only do you have to be trained to be able to put it on, you also have to be trained in order how not to mess with it, how to play with it, how to touch it on a regular basis. Because when you do that, you then end up actually increasing the chance that it's going to get into your mouth or to your nose, whatever happens to be in that mask. And so what you have to realize is it's really something that you have to be trained and almost like a Zen master when it comes to doing this properly in order to use it as a protective layer. Um, we don't have that here in Canada for the most part. And in many parts of the, uh, of the world, they, they're just not used to it. So while they may show that if you're using under a controlled situation where you've been trained and you know exactly what you're doing, that a mask is going to be able to help you, such as a healthcare worker, it may not necessarily be good for just the regular average individual who's never had this type of training before. Uh, so the the bottom line is is the message that we've been telling people and the health officials have been telling people that uh, stay home. But if you do have to go out, stay that two meters away, and that's mm-hmm. that's the good amount of protection. That is a really good amount of protection. But let me tell you something. I was out yesterday doing food shopping. A couple places, no problem at all. Could do the social distancing. Other places, eh, not so much. So what I do is I have a scarf. And the scarf is made of a, of a fairly thick cotton. I double that up. And we've shown this in you know, research uh, papers and this type of thing, that it can provide ample protection against droplets when they are put within that social distancing range. So basically, if you happen to be in a situation where you can't be you know, within or outside of that social distancing um, environment, then you know, the scarf might be that sort of last resort to be able to protect you. That's another reason why we basically say just don't put yourself in that situation in the first place. I have found myself the same as you, and I've been doing my best when I have to go out to stay the two meters, but there have been times if I'm walking across the bridge, you inevitably are, are say, closer than that. Uh, I, I have now involuntarily, I've started holding my breath every time yes. I walk by someone. Is, there, oh. is, is that a good thing to do? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is, <laughs> you get trained to do this. So for me, it's absolutely normal. Whenever, and even this is like during all the times, not just simply, you know, during COVID, but whenever someone comes within that sort of, uh, one meter distance of me, I tend to just hold my breath until I'm out of there. Uh, and, and then that way I know that at least I'm not inhaling and that if there is any kind of contact with droplets or anything, it hopefully will get picked up by, uh, you know, my nose hairs 
or get caught up in my saliva so that there's very low chance that I'm going to be able to uh, bring it in so that it can infect me. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you're never going to hear anybody recommend that, but I totally agree. Okay, good. I feel better now. <laughs> Jason Tetro, thanks so much. I know we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for your time. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for being with us. Well, yesterday we heard from the B.C. government about what is being done to help renters and landlords during the COVID-19 pandemic. The idea or that some renters, if they are unable to pay their rent, can apply to get $500 a month for the next few months and that evictions will be stopped. There will be an almost universal moratorium on evictions. So what does the Vancouver Tenants Union say about this? Mazdaq, Rib Navas joins me on the line now, a member of the steering committee at the Vancouver Tenants Union. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, is this what you were hoping for, the announcement that we heard yesterday? Um, it certainly includes some of the things that we were asking for. Uh, so, um, But what was really obvious was sort of a change in tone. Uh, on Monday, John Horgan sort of uh, stood in the press conference and said some evictions will continue. And yesterday uh, he stood up and he said almost all evictions will stop. Um, And in between that time, we had uh, tenants who organized and made over 200 calls uh, to Selena Robinson, uh, the Minister of Housing's uh, office, um, as well as other organizations that did their part, a lot of social media movement. Um, So that showed us that if uh, tenants fight back, they can win. Um, We we still have some concerns in terms of who those exceptions might be in that case, because what we've learned from this pandemic is that health is a collective matter. And even if one person is put at risk, we need to understand what that truly means. Um, In terms of the second measure of the income support, you know, the, the amount that we were seeing with the f- up to $500, uh, we're talking about uh, living in one of the most expensive cities in North America. Market rate uh, rentals for one bedrooms are sitting at $2,100 in Vancouver uh, and for two bedrooms at $3,000. So the amount of the $500 per household um, is pretty concerning and underwhelming. Um, but also there's the bit about how that money is going to be accessible, who's going to get it, and how fast it's going to go out. And that's a bigger concern because um, this is not some sort of a universal solution that they're sending out as fast as possible. There's means testing happening. There's burdens that are going to fall on tenants to apply for it. Um, and at the end of the day, I have to say it amounts to... Um, a landlord subsidy uh, as opposed to an income help for renters. It goes directly to your landlord. Right, but I would imagine, though, if they didn't make it so it's, and John Horgan said this yesterday, if you can continue to pay your rent, pay your rent. This is to help people who can't, because if they just wrote a check to everybody, uh, then it would be going to to people that don't need the income assistance. Um, So I think what we're talking about here is that Essentially, rent day is coming up five or six days from now, and the premier um, actually acknowledged that this money is not going to get to people by April 1st. And a big part of that is really when you have solutions that are means-tested, where people have to prove to the government that they qualify for something, 
there's going to be a lot of administrative burden, a lot of time and labor that needs to go into that. Um, and that is going to really slow things down for people who are in the most precarious situation right now, um, as well as um, thinking about uh, not making an assumption on uh, who's able to apply for programs. Uh, as an example, recently, recently we heard um, from a, a tenant who moved into their van. And so when you're living out of your van, how are you able to navigate the patchwork of support from the federal program and EI and now this new program through BC Housing um, when uh, community centers are shut down, uh, you might not have uh, access to Internet and those kinds of concerns. So there's some things that I think haven't been thought through. Uh, is there some comfort in knowing then, like you said, rent day is just a few days away, but even if this money hasn't been all dispersed, which it won't be, you're right, there's a lot of administration that needs to be done. Uh, with the moratorium on evictions, even if somebody can't make their rent on April 1st, they, the, under these new rules, they won't be evicted for that. So that's part of it. I think there is a comfort in that sense. Um, I think what it really highlights is that um, folks who are precarious, tenants especially, really need to think about the future. Um, think about where they're going to be uh, in a few months from now um, in terms of savings they might have or other supports they might be re receiving. And really think about whether it makes sense to pay rent right now come April 1st. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, folks need to think about prioritizing feeding themselves and their families and taking care of their health. And the moratorium eviction is going to help with that. But there's, this is just the beginning. Um, what tenants need to do is uh, organize and really try and um, be able to provide solidarity to each other so that, for example, if they are in a rental building, um, they're able to go to their landlord and say, checks haven't arrived, we're not going to be able to pay, and do that collectively um, as opposed to as an individual. All right, uh, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time. Mazdaq, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That is Mazdaq Garabnavas, member of the steering committee at the Vancouver Tenants Union. Uh, of course, that also is an issue for landlords, and uh, we understand that. But if suddenly all of the tenants cannot pay the landlord, the landlord has a mortgage to pay and is relying on that money, as many do, to pay the mortgage, they need some relief too. Uh, David Hutniak with Landlord BC is going to be joining Linda Steele at 3.35 today. So he'll have an update and a response from landlords as well. We are going to take a break for the news headlines to the bottom of the hour. When we come back, a lot more news to bring your way. We heard from Mike Farnworth earlier today declaring that state of emergency, outlining those rules, which basically stop with the patchwork and make one set of rules for the province, with the exception of Vancouver. Vancouver's state of emergency was brought in under the Vancouver Charter, which is different from the other cities and municipalities. The city of Vancouver is going to have an update on what it is doing to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on residents as well as on city operations. So we are going to bring that to you live as the 
city administrators, the officials with the city of Vancouver speak. And then we'll have time for your reaction as well. And uh, we had so many calls earlier. We didn't get to all of them. Want to hear from you. What is being done in your community? What are you seeing as far as the response to COVID-19? Where could we see improvements? So what is being done right? We'll talk about that after the news. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday. And we are going to talk a little bit about taxes because that is one of the many announcements that we've been covering these past few days. And taxpayers in this country have been told that you get a bit of a break if you need to defer, if you won't have time to get the taxes done for the traditional tax deadline, you can defer until June 1st. But what about people who are expecting a refund or who are, or who are applying for the Canada Child Benefit or other benefits that they would like to get more clarity on? Well, let's bring Bring in a tax expert, and Jerry Vitoratos is also with UFile. He's a national tax specialist and joins us on the line. Jerry, thanks so much for being back with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I would imagine you're getting a lot of questions as well from people wondering what COVID-19 means when it comes to taxes and whatnot. What are the main things people are asking you? Well, essentially, what they're asking is uh, what it, what the deadline entails. Essentially, what is the extension of the deadline entails? So, of course, what the government has mentioned, as you mentioned as well uh, in the in your introduction, is that uh, the deadline for the tax turn is the first of June. Uh, however, just remember that the deadline for paying any amount owing that you have on your tax turn is actually the thirty first of August. So, the government has really extended that deadline. And that includes penalties as well. So, even even if you have not uh, submitted a return by for the 1st of June, even if you have not uh, paid your amount owing by then, uh, you have no interest or penalties until the 30, 31st of August. So for those who who owe money on their tax turn, that, that is a really, really helpful break uh, for those individuals. For those who are getting refunds, to be honest with you, these deadlines mean nothing, really. Uh, if you have money coming back to you from the government, if the government owes you a refund, you, you should be submitting the tax turn as soon as possible. Of course, a lot of Canadians right now are facing a really big cash crunch when it comes to you know the, uh, what's happening with COVID-19. So there's really no reason to delay. If you have a refund, file your return ASAP. Right. And, and are there any concerns then with filing if people do still file as soon as possible uh, and get those uh, papers done? Is there any concern with staffing at uh, C- the, CR- the CRA as far as will there be enough staff to be processing them and getting that, uh, getting them done as they come in? No, there should not be, uh, for the simple reason that the CRA is used to this period uh, taking on the, the surcharge, while employment insurance is not the same. Employment insurance, they don't have specific deadlines in order to uh, process all the employment insurance applications. Of course, we're talking about Service Canada now, which is the other, the other branch of the federal government. That's the reason why we're seeing so many delays, because they're not used to a set deadline every single year, while the CRA is used to a set deadline. So for them, it really doesn't change much. All they're going to do essentially is maybe extend some of the seasonal staff that they hire. They'll extend them till, uh, you know, 1st of June and probably till around 31st of August. But it really changes. It doesn't change much as far as the processing. Don't forget as well that the majority of Canadians now are filing their tax returns electronically uh, through NetFile. So usually it's an automated system that will process their return. And within seven to 10 days, they'll get the refunds or they'll, or, or they'll get their assessments. So nothing really changes as far as that. Uh, 
as far, even with these extraordinary times. Uh, so it sounds like, though, even if you think you're going to be owing money, you could you could defer filing until June 1st, but probably a better idea, get it done, get it in early, because even then, like you said, you can still defer payment until August 31st, and you would have a better idea kind of where you stand financially and how much that bill is going to be when you eventually do have to pay it. Yes, exactly. So it, that, that's the key is that the 1st of June, uh, yes, is the, is the quote-unquote deadline for the return. But again, they give you that break, as I mentioned before, uh, where there's no interest or penalty to the 31st of August. The, uh, it, the main reason to file now, and I believe that's the reason the government chose the 1st of June as the date uh, to file, is that for the increased benefits that they've announced in the economic response plan, they still need your income based on your tax return in order to in order to determine what these benefits are going to be. So, for example, they've announced that they're going to increase the GST credit. They're going to double it, basically, for those who are eligible. Uh, they're also increasing the Canada Child Benefit. They're going to give a one-time payment of $300 per child in the month of May. And now with a new SERB uh, credit, uh, which they just announced uh, yesterday, which is the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, for all these benefits, to determine your eligibility, they need your tax return. They need the information that's on the tax return. So even if you owe money, nothing prevents you to file it before June 1st and simply wait till August 31st. In the meantime, you won't see any delays in the benefits that you're entitled to. And what about people, like you said, the majority or the bulk of people are uh, using that file and are filing electronically, but people still do uh, talk to accountants or tax specialists and and, uh, sometimes see them in person. My guess is there's not as much of that happening, if any, given uh, the social distancing and how we're supposed to be staying away from people for two meters. Uh, The outreach program with the CRA has adapted a bit, but what do you say to people who are looking for tax advice? I would say I would say right now, uh, with technology where it's at right now, uh, considering how a lot of these offices, especially tax preparation firms, are now going paperless, they've been doing this for the last five years already. Uh, they, they should have secure portals. Uh, what I would say is, if you're going to go to a tax advisor, make sure that this tax advisor has a secure portal for you to exchange your documents with them. You don't necessarily need to be physically at the preparer's office anymore to produce your tax returns. Uh, a reputable tax office should have some secure portal, you know, similar to something like Google Drive, for example, uh, where you can exchange uh, your documents with that preparer, uh, and, be, and they should still be able to produce the tax return for you. Uh, another announcement that was made as well in the Economic Response Plan is that now the government will accept electronic signatures when it comes to consent for electronic filing from a preparer. So normally a preparer has to produce a specific form to get consent from you to be able to transmit your return. Now, again, you no longer need to go to their office physically in order to sign off and have the preparer submit the tax return for you. Another option as well, and again, this goes back to technology and where we, we've, you know, how far we've come in the last five years is also the autofill my return program. And whether you are producing your own return or whether it's a tax preparer producing your return, you can download your slips directly from the CRA into either a consumer software like ours, which is UFile, or uh, your preparer can download it directly in their professional software as well. So there's really, you know, whether you choose either or, uh, either scenario, uh, you're still covered with the technology and how, how advanced we've gone today. 
All right. Good advice, because I know a lot of people uh, do have a lot of questions about that. Jerry, we'll let you go. But thanks again for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you for having me again. All right. That is Jerry Viterato, CUFILE, a national tax specialist. Uh, We were talking about individuals there. And just at one point, if you are a trust, if you are filing for the taxation year ending December 31st, 2019, uh, the government has also deferred or changed that filing due date. It has been deferred until May 1st, 2020. All right, uh, just coming uh, off of that news conference, just a short recap, if you weren't uh, listening to that, that was seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie saying, as we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the uh, parts of our population, seniors, uh, seniors that make up a good number of people and in many cases uh, live alone uh, and perhaps need a little bit of help. But there's been that disconnect in people who want to help and not knowing exactly how to go about doing that. So now from this point on, if you are a senior who needs a bit of help, whether you need some groceries delivered or you need something else, you can call 211 and there will be staff there that will be matching people up who call to offer help to seniors. Again, if you want to do, uh, deliver groceries or do a virtual visit or just do something to help somebody who maybe is a little frightened working through the COVID-19 pandemic. So great news, that number again, 211. And that is one of the nice things. We've certainly seen acts of kindness, people stepping up to do what they can to try and help people through the pandemic as it's still going to be this unprecedented, strange situation for the next few days, weeks, possibly months. Well, a Vancouver company has also done something to acknowledge and say thank you to the frontline healthcare workers in BC. And Michaela Goh, a co-founder of the company Vessi, is joining me on the line now. Thank you so much for joining us to chat this today. I appreciate it. Hi hey there, no problem at all, and thanks for having me. Uh, we saw this a couple days ago uh, that Vessi is offering up shoes to healthcare workers. So how did that? How did your company kind of come up with this idea to give a thousand pairs of shoes, or even more than that, to some frontline healthcare workers in BC? Yeah. This is about our community, and you know, during a time, a time like this, we really like took a step back and looked at what we could do to help our community. Um, and, you know, the people that are working with keeping us safe within this community. And we're like, you know what, this is the least that we, the least that we could do. Um, and we wanted to do even a little bit of what, uh, like a part, sorry, I'm a little bit nervous right now. That's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, we kind of took a step back and said, what can we do for the community? And, um, this donation, hopefully, you know, it can brighten up like people's days um, um, and kind of see a bright side of things. And hopefully, we can stir up more community things within the um, more things that we can give back within the community. Even though this is over now, um, we are still looking at different ways that we could support other people in the community. Very nice. Uh, talk a bit about the shoes, because I think a lot of people are familiar with these shoes. Uh, it rains a lot in Vancouver. These shoes are waterproof. Uh, tell us a little bit about, it was you and two others, how you guys even started making these shoes. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we all kind of grew up in Vancouver, uh, and as you guys know, like it always rains here. Um, and the idea behind like waterproof sneakers at first was like, oh my God, like how is this not a thing yet, right? Um, <laughs> Like, we have to have boots, we have to have sneakers when we go to the gym, we have to have work shoes. And we kind of just want to create that one shoe that you can wear through any season, through your work, through the gym, through hiking, and, like, still feel comfortable in it. And so um, the three of us kind of, like, started our journey into Kickstarter, and we realized, oh, my gosh, people do want something like this. 
And that's kind of like how we grew to where we are today. All right. And now since you put it out there that you are offering up a thousand plus pairs of shoes mm-hmm. to frontline healthcare workers, what has the response been like? Oh, it's been and amazing, actually. Um, it's it's so nice to see people kind of rally together, like tagging their um, people that they know that work in the healthcare. Like just all the positivity around it just makes it, it we're so humbled to be a part of this process. Have you given away all the shoes? So we are actually going through all of the um, applications right now um, as we speak. Um, hopefully by the end of the week, we'll have kind of like uh, the set numbers. And then from then, like we... As I mentioned earlier, we are still looking at different ways that we can give back to the, not everyone, of course, that applied could, could get it, but um, we're still looking at different ways that we can give back to those people. All right. And, and again, it is nice to see these initiatives and, and a simple act of offering up a pair of shoes to a healthcare worker can make such a big difference. Uh, your company, though, are you um, going through any of the, the negativity or as far as, I mean, a lot of businesses are, are going to suffer because of COVID-19. We're certainly seeing a big hit to, to many of them. How is your company doing? Um, for now, we're, we're doing, we're still doing well. Um, we're lucky enough that, you know, we're kind of just like an e-com website website so everyone's more remote and then we are online um and we're very lucky with the team that we have because you know at a time like this especially like everybody has to make sure like we all come together with like you know our mission our vision um and so i'm very very lucky to be a part of this team and like even support from the community is amazing Uh, That's so great. And you make an interesting point. There are some companies that are based where it is much easier for people to work from home or to be physically distanced and and be able to deliver in uh, the normal ways uh, that they that they've been doing. Uh, It it, uh, doesn't doesn't have a it's not a hugely impacted because of this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, we do have like, you know, people that work with us in like our warehouses and all that. And we want to make sure that, you know, that safety is number one first. So there are implementations that we've made to make sure that, you know, you disinfect things like because at the end of the day, you know, our business is a business that like people are what makes it um, what it is. Right. And so, yeah, just taking that extra precautious measures as well. All right. So at this point, if there are any healthcare workers that maybe are hearing this or just hearing about this giveaway, are they still able to apply or is that part done? Um, at this time, we have shut down the applications, but um, if they do follow us on Instagram, we are kind of, as I mentioned earlier, um, exploring different ways. So if something does come up, that would be the first place where we would post it. Okay. And this isn't the first time, is it, that your company has done something? From what I understand, you've offered discounts to different sectors of the workforce and you've tried to give back before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, So we are kind of, (laughs) this is kind of one of the initiatives that we were talking about this morning, actually, is that we we want to give back to like different workforces as well. Um, Like what's the best way we could do that? Like discounts would be something that um, would be easy. um, But We're just kind of facilitating that flow of things, like how people can apply for that. So we are talking about doing things like this. It's just that um, not yet right now, just working out the back end of things. All right. Well, it's great to see uh, a company giving back and doing something, doing the shout out to to healthcare workers. Uh, Michaela, we'll leave it at that. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it today. Appreciate it.